start with verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress, transgress, to Gogol and multiply transgressions. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for you so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and a lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there were yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew. Your many gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts they devoured. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away your horses. And I made the stench of your camp go up from your nostril, into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you, as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were as a brand plucked out of the burning. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. May God bless the reading of his word. So it's been a few weeks since we've been in Amos, and I'm hoping that everyone's had a break of all that judgment talk. (laughs) Um, But we're coming back to it. We are coming back now to Amos to hear some more judgments. We're going to hear what it is that Amos prophesied and what God spoke through Amos to the people of Israel and ultimately to Judah. Um, So let's go ahead and continue. Verse 4. Come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now before we continue, let's show a map real quick so we can see where we're looking at. Alright, so we're still talking about Israel and Bethel. And Gilgal are the two places that are being discussed. Now you see Gilgal is on here in two different places. We don't really know exactly where Gilgal was, but within that area. And Bethel right there in the center. Um, but let's continue, okay? What, why these two places? Why is this being brought up? Amos continues his critique against the house of Jacob. He does this by using a common tool which we still use today. And that's sarcasm. He calls them to go to Bethel to transgress, or Gilgal to multiply transgressions. One might wonder why he mentions these two towns when discussing transgressions. Well, Bethel is mentioned because Jeroboam erected a substitute center for worship for the northern kingdom there. In this way, the northern, um, northern nation cut itself off from Jerusalem, which was the place for worship. Likewise, Gilgal was a place often traveled to because it was a pilgrimage site during the time of Amos. To multiply transgressions, then, is for them to continue to worship in these areas. 
It was forbidden in the law to have a place of worship outside of the temple in Jerusalem, um, at Jerusalem. Thus, to continue to go to these places to worship was to continue to sin against the law. We see this further, that they would sacrifice at the altars and bring their tithes. Ironically, Amos is saying, keep doing these things at these places and continue to commit your sins. Go ahead. It wasn't necessary to sacrifice every morning or every three days. So Amos is saying with this sarcasm, continue to do as you please. He specifies the kind of offerings they are to sacrifice with thanksgiving offerings and free will offerings. Um, these offerings were not required by law, but were to be given voluntarily. As Stuart says, one of the commentators I read, beyond the call of duty these offerings were. Amos mockingly calls them to continue to sacrifice with their current enthusiasm with publish them. Let people know that they're making these special sacrifices. Go ahead, show them your zeal. He concludes his scathing remarks by saying, For so you love to do, O people of Israel. It isn't their love for God which is causing them to sacrifice, nor love for their neighbors. Instead, it is love for themselves which causes them to carry on in this way, to be known for their sacrifices, even if the sacrifices are unlawful. Ultimately, we also find it isn't so much Amos who is even proclaiming these things, but God himself who is mocking their false religiosity. And so we come to verse 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. God now causes them to consider their past. In the past, he has chastised them by bringing judgments upon them. All of the judgments which we will be looking at are found in Deuteronomy and Leviticus for covenantal law-breaking. The first is that God gave them cleanness of teeth in all of their cities. This terminology seems very odd to us, but it means that he gave them famine. Obviously, to have clean teeth would mean that one does not have much to eat. We see this clearly as we read, lack in bread in all your places, further indicating the punishment was indeed famine. Yet despite this chastisement and judgment, the people did not return to faithful worship in God. And like the previous verses, we are told that it is God who is making these statements and these um, calls to remember what he has done. So verse 7 and verse 8. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another city. One field would have rain and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So not only was there famine, but we also learn in these verses that there was drought as well. Not only any kind of drought, but a drought that lasted for three months. The frustrating thing about the drought was that it did not hit the entire nation. Instead, the drought would hit a specific area, causing their crops to wither and their fields to die. Not only this, but those cities hit by drought would be forced to travel to cities not hit by the drought in order to get a drink. Unfortunately, there would not be enough for everyone to have their fill. Despite this, the people still did not return to the Lord, declares the Lord. Now verse 9, I struck you 
with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. God did not only send drought at times, nor did he send famine, but also sent blight and mildew. This kind of language is meant to convey a general crop disease that spread throughout many of the gardens and the vineyards. Yet it is, was not only crop disease, but God also sent locusts who devoured their fig and olive trees. Those who planted were to harvest such trees, but they were unable to because the plague of locusts which descended upon their lands. Yet despite these judgments, the people still did not see the error of their ways, and they still refused to turn toward God. Verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence of the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. So far the judgments continue with a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. For Egypt... To be invoked is a reminder of their time during the Exodus, when God sent the plagues against Egypt because they kept the house of Jacob in slavery. In Leviticus, pestilence and warfare is combined in a curse system, and that's exactly what we see here too. Thus, God did not only bring pestilence, but also warfare upon the people. When pestilence, disease in general, occurs, and then warfare, it becomes hard enough to fight against your enemies. This combined with the reality that God was causing these judgments to occur meant the end result would be death for the warriors, a loss of commodities with the horses, and the pestilence in general caused a great stench to fill up the camp. Yet despite the obvious warning, the people did not repent. They did not remain faithful and instead remained in their sin, not turning toward God. Verse 11, I overthrew some of you. As when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. The second to last judgment, which will be highlighted, and the last judgment which has already occurred, was one which was reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah. Thus, for many of the judgments which occurred, they could have easily explained them away. Ah, this is just a natural thing that's happening. Sometimes famine happens, sometimes drought, even warfare can occur. This, however, is not something which can just occur naturally, but represents a punishment which they should know for sure meant God was not pleased. We cannot be sure what exactly occurred, though most likely it was an earthquake which started fires in the cities. The people are lucky to continue in existence after this judgment and the previous ones, and indeed they were like a brand plucked out of the burning, that is a stick plucked out of a fire. Yet the people still did not return to the Lord. And like the previous oracles, this was a reminder from God to the people of his continued chastisement of the people. Unfortunately, they did not respond to his judgments. Verse 12, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. The previous plagues and judgments were but a sampling of what is going to occur. God has already done much of the things which he has already shown, but they were limited. Now, however, they will not be limited. Instead, they will experience the wrath of God without limits. They thought that they had 
such miseries of the past. But in truth, they were just the beginning, a small dose of what will eventually happen to them. The people will meet their God. And instead of God coming, however, in love and peace, he will come in wrath and judgment. They may prepare themselves for facing him as they prepare for battle, or they might just mean to prepare to meet their God, whom they have angered so greatly. But in either case, the God whom they will encounter is described in the final verse, verse 13. For behold, he who forms the mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what is his thought, who makes the morning darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord, the God of hosts, is his name. Who is this God? He is the one who forms the mountains and creates the wind. This is the God who is not controlled by the drought or the famine, but who controls them all. He is the one who created the land itself, the world, and all things in it. He is the one who knows the secret thoughts of mankind. Nothing is hidden from the God of all things who is able to penetrate even the depths of a person's heart. He knows each of us, and he knows each of them. Nothing can escape his sight. He makes the morning darkness. He treads the heights of the earth. He is the maker and sustainer. Nothing can hold God. He is above all things, beyond all things, greater than all things. He is the Lord, the one who is the maker, creator, and sustainer. He is the God of hosts, of all the spirits, the angels themselves. They all fall under his sovereign rule. He is the Lord, the one who is the king of all, Lord of all. It is not any God who can claim these things, but the Lord. Yahweh is his name. The covenant God of the people, the one whose holy name is to be praised and glorified. It is he, Yahweh, who is the maker, the creator, the sustainer, the king of all, the very God whom they are to worship and love, whom they have angered. He is the one who they will meet, and he will bring destruction for their transgressions. So this leads us to the main point of these verses. And the main point is to first recognize the futility of the house of Jacob with their worship and sacrificial systems. They continue to disobey the very law which tells them that they are to where they are to worship. Instead of sacrificing at the one place God has commanded them to, which is Jerusalem, they continue to sacrifice at an altar in the wrong location. And because of this, whatever guilt they think or believe they are alleviating, through sacrifices they are not. And instead, they're adding to them by their failure to sacrifice properly. Because of this, and their many other transgressions, God has sent warnings, plagues, and judgments. Yet the people refuse to turn toward him. Because of this, they will meet their God, not in love, but a final judgment which in Leviticus and Deuteronomy spells out clearly, exile from the promised land. Alright, so some application points. In today's text, we were able to see Amos speak to the people of Israel in their own futility. What were they doing which was futile? It was their worship, their sacrifices, which they presumed to be right, but were really wrong. They were making the sacrifices true. However, they were making the sacrifices in an unlawful place. As such, even their sacrifices were wrong. This leads us to consider worship itself. 
Something we can learn from the ancient Israelites in this regard is that there can be futile worship. There can be a worship service which in all appearance seems to be worshipful, but is in fact not worship at all. Yet what can we know about worship? Do the scriptures provide us um, what is proper and right worship? There are many forms of worship after all. Some congregation, they sing hymns. We do that. Others sing modern worship. Still others have a blended worship service where they sing both. Are we to say that if one congregation does it one way, they are wrong? And if another congregation does it another way, they are right? In all honesty, I do not believe that is the place we should go when we consider right worship. God is glorified through hymns as well as through more modern worship. He's glorified through both. Likewise, there are poor hymns, theologically speaking, and there are poor modern worship songs, theologically speaking, as well. So that said, what can we learn about worship? Well, for starters, both Old and New Testaments are full of references of worship. Worship is done through singing, which is found in both Testaments, and through sacrifices, which is also found in both Testaments, though especially in the Old Testament. But what else is there than singing and sacrifice? Do the scriptures speak of more? Yes. Let's consider two places in particular. The first is when Jesus is at the well speaking to the Samaritan woman. We find the conversation leads to worship in which Jesus says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship What you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such a people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So what do we find? We find evidence of true worship, and it is done in spirit and truth. What does it mean to be in spirit, though? Often in the scriptures, the term spirit is meant to convey the inner person, that part of which of the self which is lasting, that which makes you, you. This self that makes you distinctly you, beyond your physical body, that is what the spirit is. We especially see this in regards to God being spirit. God is the essence, and his essence is a spirit. He does not have a physical body. He doesn't need a physical body. Does that mean that the physical cannot worship God? We will find that's not the case, since our inner selves, our spirits, are so in congruence with our physical bodies in some capacity. So it can't mean that. So instead, we should look at it as with our being. With all of who we are, we are to worship God. In this way, when we do give ourselves over to God completely, then we are worshiping Him as we should. We will see how that plays out further in a minute. For now, let's also consider the second aspect, which is truth. It makes sense for Jesus to bring up truth when discussing worship. He was well aware of the ancient Israelites and the Judeans who worshipped God with false lips and lies. He knew his own people at the time, the Pharisees um, and the Sadducees. Not only worshipping God in these ways, but also incorrectly by definition. To worship God in truth, then, is a reminder that our God is a God of truth. He is a God who despises that which is false. 
There's definitely a right way and a wrong way to worship God. We are to seek the right way, not the false way. If we do worship God incorrectly, such worship will be rejected by God the same way Cain's offering was rejected while Abel's was accepted. Again, this is not about how we worship in regards to our songs. I would say that our songs, or at least the way we write our songs, is not really the issue. It's not the music. The question is if our worship is in truth. Do we accurately praise the God who is there in our worship? Do our worship songs accurately portray who God is? This is where theology is important. Because there are songs which seem good, but in truth, when we consider them in light of the scriptures, actually do a poor job at grasping who God is in his truth. Yet there is even more. For to worship in spirit and truth is the foundation. Paul builds upon that foundation when he says in Romans, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Notice, Our spiritual act of worship is when we present our bodies as living sacrifices. That is, we are to give all of ourselves over to God. Paul does, as we saw earlier with the Spirit, tying together the spiritual and the physical and reminding us that a separation of the two is not in view. Instead, it is all of who we are that is to be given over to God. This is all true worship of God. To truly worship God isn't only singing hymns, but it is to give everything of your life over to him as though you were a sacrifice given on the altar. This does not mean literally sacrifice yourself. Instead, it is an image of a burnt sacrifice. Burnt sacrifices were given fully to God. So we too should be burnt sacrifices, giving ourselves over to God. So the way you live, your lifestyle, your thoughts, the way you run your business, the way you treat others, whatever you are able to do in this life is to be given over to the glory of God. That is what true worship looks like. That is what we find here in the New Testament. And that is what is lacking in the Old Testament. So that is the encouragement. And that is what we are to strive for Let's not be vain in our worship. Let us not have futile worship. Instead, let us be a people who worship God rightly with all of our beings and in truth. Not giving ourselves over to false ideas or beliefs about God or ourselves, or giving ourselves over to lifestyles and thoughts which are contrary to that which God's will is in our lives. For such a worship would be futile. But giving ourselves over to God fully is neither futile nor false, but complete and true. Now this leads to the second point, and that's the sovereignty of God. So far in Amos, we have seen the sovereignty of God over the nations. Just that has likely been surprising truth to find. That God is sovereign over every nation, not only over his own people. He is the King and Lord of all peoples and all nations. However, that is not all of it. 
Amos brings us to another important realization. He is not only sovereign over peoples, and he's not only sovereign over nations. He is also sovereign over the cosmos or the universe. He is the one who created all things. Should it surprise any of us to find that he is also always the one who is controlling all things? That the droughts, the rains, the plagues, the illnesses, the crop failures, they are all under his sovereign control. Of course we should know this. Consider what Jesus says in Matthew 5. And technically there's a lot in here, but we're going to cut it up a bit. You have heard it said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In this text, Jesus is informing his disciples that God is gracious to all peoples. And because of that, we should seek to show grace to others as well. However, that is not all we see here. For we also see that God is sovereign over the sun and the storms. He is the one who causes these things to occur. Again, we should not be surprised by this. This is God's universe, even though it has felt the pangs of sin. Consider what Paul says in Colossians to further emphasize the point. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Christ is the preeminent one. We learn here that he is not only the creator of all things, but he is also the sustainer of all things. Without him, this universe would literally unravel. It would fall apart. All creation is in his hand because it was created by him, for him. All of this is for him. Because it is for him, by him, and sustained by him, then we can be sure that the world itself is under his dominion, his control. So it is, God can do what he will with the world. He can cause devastation to occur. He can use storms and drought to bring judgment upon peoples. He is allowed to do this. It is well within his right, and if it is his will, we can be sure that judgment like this will happen, just as it happened in the past. Some will wonder, though, what should our response be to such things? If God is going to cause these judgments to occur, then wouldn't we be going against the will of God if we were to, let's say, help those who are under these judgments? Wouldn't it be wrong to help those who are experiencing the judgments of God? There's this thing I saw, I have to take a minute. There's this thing I saw on the internet called um, 
paradoxes where it's kind of like, what if, what if, let's say, Pinocchio said that his nose would grow? What would happen? Because you know, what would his nose grow? Or wouldn't it grow? You don't know because it's technically a paradox. Anyway, um, but this is a paradox. It's a paradox that's presented. It reminds me of a story I once heard. I want to say it was uh, Francis Schaeffer who didn't write it, but he included it in one of his books. And he had read a book where once there was a plague in this city. And a doctor helped those who were sick. But the priest refused to help, believing the plague was from God as judgment. So we have this paradox. What should the Christian response be? Should we help? Should we not? Personally, I agree with Schaefer when he came to the conclusion that putting it this way isn't correct. Instead, Schaefer brought up the death of Lazarus. If you remember, this is the place where Jesus wept. Of all the things we remember from this moment of Jesus' life, that is the thing which we most remember, his loving and caring character at the death of his friend. But do you know what else the text says? Let's consider it. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then shortly thereafter at the tomb, we read this again. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now, do you know what's interesting? We read here as deeply moved in both of these. However, do you know what it would be better translated as? He was indignant. He was angry. To be greatly troubled is to be agitated. He's annoyed. Now some of you at this point might be wondering, what is this about? (laughs) The answer is, the death of Lazarus was an act of God. Yet what do we find in response of Jesus? Anger. Why is he angry? Is he angry at God? No. Is he angry at his friends? No. Instead, he is showing the proper human response to judgment, the proper response to sin. Anger. We do not get angry at God for his judgment. We get a righteous and holy anger against the sin which causes judgment to occur in the first place. Thus, when judgment occurs, we can still show love and grace. Just as Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, so we too can be gracious and loving towards those who are experiencing judgments of God for their sins without going against God. In fact, to do otherwise would go against God and his will for us, because that's what we're called to do. So in some capacity in this life, we remember the judgment of God as just judgment. But at the same time, we have compassion on sinners who receive judgment just as Christ had compassion. There will come a time when there is no grace or compassion to give. We see this clearly in Amos. Amos demonstrates that God was being patient in his chastisement of the people. But eventually there came a time when that patience ceased. While we are here, we continue to seek grace for the same reason Christ raised Lazarus from the dead. And that is so that Christ can be glorified. And we give grace knowing that there will come a time when grace will no longer be given. All of this reminds us of the sovereignty of God. For God is the God of wrath, but also the God of peace. He is the God of judgments, but also of mercy. He is the God of storms 
and the God of calm. He is the God of all without any way jeopardizing his own righteousness or in any way um, jeopardizing his attributes in the process. I suppose this is something we must consider. For it is right for us to pray for justice to occur. We pray for righteousness to happen in our world. When it does happen, we still have a responsibility to show grace. When those who are suffering because of judgments, whether it be through warfare or from God via the physical world, such as drought, famine, or floods, we can still be gracious and loving. In the above story, with the doctor and the priest, the response should be, we are not like either. For the doctor fought God, the priest did nothing. We are to praise God and to do something. We are to sing the praises of God's righteousness while at the same time being gracious in the process. Because as Christ said in the verses seen above, Be perfect as your Father is perfect. Love your enemies, for that is a greater representation of love than loving those who love you. And even further in the writings of Paul, remember that we are to be the body of Christ. All of this is hard to consider at times. Paul once discussed the difference between having milk or solid food. Discussing the sovereignty of God is always going to force us to have solid food. It takes us a long time to chew on it and consider it. But we know that it will nourish us if we consider it. We know that it will draw us closer to God, His grace, His mercy, His love, and the reality that He is sovereign which should lead us to peace. So I encourage you to consider these things, to consider how God is the creator and the sustainer, and that he is also the judge of both the just and the unjust, being gracious to both as well. This should give us hope in our life, for it reminds us that though we go through hard times, God can change any circumstance for his good and our benefit. Perhaps that is the most important lesson of all, when we see the sovereignty of God in judgments in these ways, that God can turn around any circumstance. He can raise Lazarus from the dead, and he can change any circumstance we are in as well. He can cause the floods in our lives to rise and to fall, and he can cause the droughts to begin and to cease. Yet if we are in Christ, then we can sure of something miraculous, and that is that God loves us in the times of flood and the times of drought. That for those who are in these moments of sorrow, God has a true purpose, a good plan for his glory and for our benefit, though we might not understand it at the time. Just as for those who are being judged by God through storms, through drought, we can be sure God is even calling them to repent and turn toward him. In this way, we have hope, even during judgment while on earth, that even those who are in the midst of it can turn in repentance and faith in Christ to be saved from the whelming flood and the eternal drought. Now this all leads us to the gospel, because in all of this we consider the gospel of Jesus Christ. For it is in the gospel itself we find justice satisfied through love. The love of God in the Trinity and how that love overflows onto those who place their faith in Christ. Thus the prophet Amos speaks to all of us today, reminding us of the judgment which should be ours, the God who we should meet in justice, to find the same God is the God who has loved us all along. 
This gospel begins with God. He is the creator and the sustainer. He was and is before all, and it is from him all things have come to be, including us. We humans are different from the rest of God's creation in that we are created in his image. Because our God knows we can, can be known, loves, is moral, has reason, and personhood within the Trinity, we too have these attributes. To be created in the image of God means that we have dignity as his creation. And it is through this doctrine we understand that there is sanctity and worth to all human life. Yet like God, we are also able to choose. There came a point when, God could have, when we could have chose God in life or sin and death. Since that time, humanity has continued to choose sin and death. Because of this, our relationship with God, ourselves, each other, and the world, they're all broken. We continue to accrue a greater moral guilt against our God every day. Because of our sins and because of this, we deserve judgment, just like the ancient Israelites and the Judeans. God could have left us in this state forever, and he could have continued in his great attributes of love, grace, mercy, and righteousness. However, God decided to speak to us, and he gave us light in our darkness. The voice we heard and the light we have seen is that of his son, Jesus Christ. He lived, died, and rose again in time, space, history, and flesh. It is through his life and death and his resurrection we are redeemed from our sin and have peace with God. It is his righteousness we cling to. It is by his blood we are cleansed. All that is required of us is obedience in two things. The first is to repent. We are to turn away from our sinful lifestyles and turn to God. We are to live according to his word, following his statute, glorifying him through our lives, living in step with the Spirit in love. And the second is faith in Christ alone. By this we understand that it is not our righteousness which makes us justified before God. It is not because of what we do which we are made right with God. Instead it is because of what Jesus has done. We rely completely on him for our justification knowing that our good works could never attain the glory of God. We may repent but that repentance does not justify us. Instead it shows we have been justified by God's grace through Jesus Christ because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, through the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. For those who do not repent and place their faith in Jesus, there is only darkness. There is only judgment for those who continue to live sinful lifestyles without repentance. Only judgment for those who believe they can be justified by the works of their own hands rather than the faith in the work of Christ on the cross. Our own works could never attain God's righteousness. And so we will only find judgment if we go before God with only our works in hand. For those who do repent and do place their faith in Jesus, however, there is peace with God. We become co-heirs with Christ of an eternal kingdom founded upon the love of God displayed through his son, Jesus Christ, for those who have placed their faith in him. This kingdom, this peace, this love will last forever as it is founded upon the God of all. My hope is that we will continue to consider this gospel and that we will remember even through tough times that even in our dark moments, God has a plan for us. That we would remember to give all, our, all of ourselves over to God as an act of worship and that we would warn others of judgment in grace, peace, and love while also being a light for those who experience judgment here and now. God be with us as we are his messengers of peace, having righteous anger against sin 
and compassion on those whom judgment falls. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the Lord of all. And even when that is hard for us to understand, and even when we have a hard time understanding your grace along with your wrath and your love along with judgment, we know that in the end you will be glorified and that your glory goes on forever. And so, Lord, it is with this that we trust you. And it's with this that we ask you, lead us into your righteousness. Let us see sin for what it is, but also let us love as we have been loved by you. And again, we thank you for what you have done through your Son, Jesus Christ, the creator and sustainer of all things. In his name we pray. Amen. Please rise as we